I think one of the wonderful ways that lawyers get to serve and that I always encourage my students to think about, you know, we get to define in large measure the world in which we live. And one of the wonderful things, especially when you're teaching new law students, is to get them to start thinking about it, which isn't something that a lot of people arrive having decided. But I invite them to give thought to the world in which they'd like to live and to talk about where our laws fall short and where our laws are adequate, but maybe not enforced in the way they should be. But it is a wonderfully um, freeing profession to feel as if you can have impact either um, with individuals if you have clients or with policy if you work in different roles. So it's incredibly rewarding. I have loved every day that I have been a lawyer. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word from the host and creator of The Nocturnists. Hey there, Visible Voices listeners. I'm Emily Silverman, a doctor in San Francisco and creator and host of The Nocturnists, a medical storytelling live show and podcast where healthcare workers share stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. And today's episode is one from the archives of the Visible Voices podcast. I'm in conversation with two scholars of law, lawyers, and friends. Professor Joanne Epps is a senior advisor to the president at Temple University. She is a professor of law, formerly serving as the dean of Temple's Beasley School of Law. From 2016 to 2021, she served as executive vice president and provost of all of Temple University. Joanne and I met when we both sat on a panel that was addressing equity, and respect in the workplace. My second guest is Judge Serena Murillo. Serena is a judge of the Los Angeles Superior Court. She has presided over the court's criminal, civil, and appellate divisions. She's a co-chair of the LA Superior Court's Latino Judicial Officers Association and is a professor at the University of California Irvine School of Law. She speaks on issues pertaining to bias and gender-based incivility in the legal profession. Now, Serena and I have been friends for over 20 years. We started college at the same time at the same place. Unfortunately, she moved back to the West Coast, so we didn't complete education together. However, we've been in touch all these years. Commonly, when Serena and I see each other, we do talk about our personal and our professional journeys. When it comes to professional, she'll talk about her perspective, experience, witnessing in the legal profession, and I do the same for medicine. And unsurprisingly, we both have stories, stories of bias, harassment, discrimination, bullying. Let's get to the conversation where, when we get started, I've asked Serena the question if she can talk about an award or an honor about which she's particularly proud. There is one award of which I'm particularly proud. When I was a deputy district attorney, there was a point in my career where I felt very limited in what I could do for the community. I wasn't 100% in favor of incarcerating everybody for the maximum amount of time, which seemed to be uh, the norm in my office, or at least what we were supposed to be doing. And um, 
there was an organization that I volunteered with called the Hollenbeck Youth Center. It's in East Los Angeles in Boyle Heights. And it was founded by a man named Danny Hernandez, who used to be, he was a, he's a veteran. He fought in Vietnam and he came back to his community and really did what he could to kind of build a coalition between the police, the, the citizens in that community and the business owners in that community. Um, and so I went there to play basketball. Somebody had said, hey, you know, we have games at lunch. And of course I show up and I'm the only woman. And there's all these DAs and public defenders for with whom I had just worked. And I thought, you know, I'm not sure this is a good idea for me <laughs> right now. But I got to know Danny and a lot of the people at the gym and the kids. Um, and so that began kind of a seven or eight year commitment that I had made to just doing whatever I could for the organization. And so many years later, Actually, I think it was 2019. Once I'd become a judge, it was a lot harder to do that volunteer work. Um, but I still, you know, kept in touch. And anyway, they they gave me their an award called Amigo de los Niños, which is a friend of the children um, at Dodger Stadium and invited my whole family to come. And I have to say, you know, there's academic awards. And then that was an award that was very, very meaningful to me because um, it, I started working there at a time when I really needed them, and I was very grateful to the fact that they not only recognized my efforts, but thought that I had actually contributed something. And so I think that was that's an award that I am particularly proud of and that was very meaningful to me. Now, both of you have dedicated your professional lives to advocacy. Advocacy, it seems, not just in terms of your clients and your work in the courtroom, uh, but advocacy within the law. Uh, for representation. Joanne, can you share with the audience, either way, whichever sort of face of advocacy uh, that you've done in your career at Temple? Thank you for that question. Um, Yes, I think on an unofficial basis, I have worked hard to make sure that people feel a sense of justice. And in that regard, I've had the opportunity to be asked by a couple of Philadelphia's mayors to serve in roles where we were trying to make sure that aspects of the justice system were fair. Um, It's funny you asked that question in terms of my role as an academic, and I actually think I would answer it um, to go back a decade earlier when I was a practicing lawyer. I started my career uh, as a prosecutor, and it was at a time when people thought that Black people actually should be defense attorneys. And so I bucked the trend then because I thought it was important that prosecutors be seen to be fair. And one of the things that I will always remember early in my career, shortly after I had um, convicted an individual, the jury had come back guilty, the defendant spun around from his table and headed over toward mine. And the police very quickly, eyeing this, sort of moved to be able to protect me. And the defendant walked over and he put his hand out and he said, I'd like to shake your hand. I've been down this road before and I've never been treated as fairly as you treated me. And I just wanted to thank you for that. And I always held that as something really special, as the kind of thing that we all need to be mindful of. Our actions are witnessed by other people. And if we model the kind of behavior that we believe to be right, we can influence people in ways that we don't always know. Yeah. Serena, how would you speak to your advocacy? So probably in, in uh, I, I'm, I'm happy for Joanne's story because it, it jogs a lot of memories for me. As a judge, I'm not, I'm going to answer that question in a, a kind of a, 
untraditional way. Obviously, as a judge, I can't advocate for anything. <laughs> um, so going back to the time when I was also a prosecutor in the district attorney's office in Los Angeles, as I mentioned, there were times where I felt limited in the alternatives that were available. Um, to kind of either rehabilitate or, or punish or, or just address a, a given situation. But one thing that I noticed early on in my career, and actually it was the reason that I originally joined the district attorney's office, and it's the, it's the reason identified by Joanne, she's right. As a Mexican-American woman, it was expected, and I think I even had this expectation for myself, that I would be a defense attorney. Um, I, I tried to apply with the public defender's office. Um, I, I, I grew up in an area where, frankly, I did not see the police as a friendly force that was there to protect and serve. I was afraid. <laughs> um, and and that, everybody in my neighborhood was afraid. And, and so it, I had a very different experience, not personally with the police, but what I expected of them. So when I became a prosecutor, I realized that me having kind of a different perspective where I didn't automatically think that everything the police said was absolutely true. Um, paired with my ability to, like Joanne, look at the defendant with a level of humanity. I, I didn't look at every black and brown person, and I'm not saying prosecutors do this, but I'm just saying personally, I didn't have the same implied bias where I looked at a defendant and thought he did it or or have this expectation where I couldn't really see that person in any role other than as a criminal. Um, and I didn't think that was a a big thing when I first started. Uh, over the course of my career, I started to see how important it was for people in those roles to have that level of humanity and openness to really be objective as to what they thought had happened in a given scenario. So I would say my advocacy, if anything, since that time has been for greater diversity um, in the criminal justice system at all levels, whether it's with the police, with uh, the court, with prosecutors and defense attorneys, because I think that when you do have a number of diverse perspectives, you achieve more fair and just results. And, and those results have greater meaning and integrity with the community because they have more faith in, in the decisions that are being made. And so I, if I'm an advocate for anything, I would say I'm an advocate for greater diversity, gender and racial diversity within the criminal justice system. What I know of both of you is you have worked for greater diversity and advocacy in terms of getting people, convincing people, encouraging people to go into law, to study law. And uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Serena, why don't you start and then Joanne? Well, I, I think I definitely encourage people to pursue a path uh, in law, whatever that means for them. I think it's an incredibly powerful degree to have. I mean, it's something that the framers had when they drafted the Constitution. It's something that legislators have, politicians, uh, obviously judges and lawyers. And um, it's just it, it, it gives you the ability to seek justice and to uh, fix problems. I mean, really, we're here to serve people. And um, I think having an understanding of how our system of laws work, whether you're a criminal attorney or a civil attorney or any other kind of attorney, is incredibly important. And and again, those roles should be filled by everyday citizens. People of all races, of all genders, should have the ability to exercise their voice in a way that's going to be meaningful within our democratic framework. So um, I, I definitely encourage people to pursue a path in the law. 
I love Serena's answer, and I share all that she said. It is a wonderful degree to have, and it is a degree of service. And I often tell my students that when you get the opportunity to be a lawyer, you get to do things nobody else in the country can do. You get to serve in ways, you know, it's not a good fact, but it is a fact that our profession is one of those that's derived, that is divided into Lawyers and non-lawyers. We don't go through life talking about doctors and non-doctors, but we do in in our profession talk about lawyers and non-lawyers. And when you have the privilege to be a lawyer, you get to serve in ways that are wonderful. And, And keying off of Serena's answer, I think one of the wonderful ways that lawyers get to serve and that I always encourage my students to think about You know, we get to define in large measure the world in which we live. And one of the wonderful things, especially when you're teaching new law students, is to get them to start thinking about it, which isn't something that a lot of people arrive having decided. But I invite them to give thought to the world in which they'd like to live and to talk about where our laws fall short and where our laws are adequate, but maybe not enforced in the way they should be. But it is a wonderfully Um, freeing profession to feel as if you can have impact either um, with individuals if you have clients or with policy if you work in different roles. So it's incredibly rewarding. I have loved every day that I have been a lawyer. Now, Joanne, you've been active in the National Association of Women Lawyers, or NAL. And Serena, you and I have had conversations uh, about women in the law and sort of women leave. And sometimes it can be difficult to retain women or retain young lawyers. Why is that? I think part of the explanation is that the law still remains incredibly structured. It doesn't make room, as other professions more readily do, for people to be diverse. And I don't mean that in in the ethnic way. I mean that in the way of the way in which they live. Accounting, the accounting profession has a much greater ability for women in particular to step off, maybe for childbearing, but for other reasons and to step back on. The law lets you step off, but it's not really good at having you step back on. And so it really is a challenge for women whose lives are just different. Um, to be able to make sure that they have a career that is forward looking and that isn't too rigid. And, and I will just add this. Um, one of the things that a good friend of mine is in the process of finalizing this week as we are recording this podcast is a study on the impact of the pandemic on women lawyers. And it has been harsh. It has really been harsh because everybody knows that the kinds of responsibilities that people faced in the aftermath of the arrival of COVID-19 fell to households, um, mothers and children and caregivers. And, and the, the responsibilities are different. And too many of them fell to women and they just felt that they couldn't continue in their full-time practice of law um, with that. So I think that for all of the wonderful things that we've accomplished in this country, um, equality of opportunity in the legal profession still needs a lot of work. Serena, I recall you and I spoke about um, schedules and accommodation of schedules depending on your role in the family and that Often there's a conference in August when children are on summer vacation and how really that's not accounting for everybody's full lives if they're working in the law. That's absolutely true. So there was an incident that occurred this summer when I was uh, teaching a class on 
pretrial release. And it was attended by about 300 people throughout the state of California. And there were academics that were invited to come and speak. And one of them um, was a really accomplished woman in another state who had a lot to say. She was supposed to speak for two hours. Um, and it was about a very complex area involving algorithms and pretrial release tools and their effect and uh, what their effects are on uh, various races and uh, socioeconomic classes within a state. And and everybody was looking forward to her speech. So she, about 30 minutes into her speech um, and class with a PowerPoint, um, this tiny little person comes walking into the room and starts saying, mom, mom, but mom, mom. And so she smiles. And I was so impressed with her. Without missing a beat, she grabs this child, scoops him onto her lap, and hands him something and and never broke her eye contact with the audience through Zoom, but she didn't miss a beat. So she keeps going. And as she's talking, the child is then grabbing at her headphone and, and saying, but mom, and trying to grab her face and turn the child, her, the mother's face towards him. And so she smiles and then in toddles another little kid. And so I thought, my I'm watching this thinking my heart is going out to this woman because I have been there. I mean, my kids are now, they're young teenagers, but they are roaming all over the house. They don't know when I'm on a meeting or when I'm not on a meeting. They might ask me things. I've learned to use my headphones to mute, to do everything. But when they're little, there's nothing that you can do. And so she ultimately said, excuse me, I apologize. And she, she didn't need to apologize because that's life. I mean, we, we need to accommodate for life. But she explained that there had been a breakdown in communication. I think her spouse was supposed to be making sure that the child stayed in a certain room. And, and I thought, and the women on the on the call, I, one of my other friends said, oh, you know that he's going to hear about that later. <laughs> because something, some breakdown happened because the, the, the child ended up coming into the room. So I think that COVID has really brought a lot of those issues to bear, especially in the legal profession where... I tell people all the time, you know, we the people never included people of color or women. Um, and when you have an institution that is set up by property owning white men for 200 years or so, um, it wasn't geared towards thinking about <laughs> what would be the best work schedule or or how could we really incorporate uh, women with children in this in, in this in this field. So it's been um, a challenge that I think COVID has exacerbated. But I think that maybe it's also an opportunity to really make some great strides in in changing the culture. And I'm hopeful that that can happen. Thank you. Now, Attorney Dean Provost Epps, uh, I am so honored and pleased and excited that you're on the episode today. Um, Serena, Risa, myself, and the audience, we want to hear some of your stories. Um, I've done a little bit of digging, a little bit of reading, and um, I want to go back to 1973. You were a first-year law student at Yale. Um, if I have my numbers correct, you were one of only 40 women and one of 10 African-Americans in your class of 150 Yale Law students. Talk to us about what got you there and how you have this actually um, habit of bucking the trend. <laughs> Thank you for the question. I probably have developed a habit of bucking the trend, but I can't say that I knew that about myself for much of my life. I feel like I've been blessed enormously 
I've achieved far more than my parents ever would have expected. Neither of them had the chance to go to college. But I've done that because of so many people in my life who've reached out a helping hand. And that includes how I got to Yale Law School. My mother was a secretary and she had always wanted to be a doctor. And she told the story as a sophomore in high school that she said to the guidance counselor that she wanted to be in the academic track and that the guidance counselor laughed until she cried and put her in the commercial track. And so that's how my mom became a secretary. And she had dreams for me, frankly, more than I had dreams for myself. Um, And she wanted me to go to college, something she'd not been able to do. I decided that what I was going to do was go to college because my mom needed me to for a couple of years. But my goal in life was to become a legal secretary. I was a big fan of Perry Mason back then. And he had this secretary, Della Street. And Della Street was his right-hand person. And she was always helping. And I was going to be Della Street to some wonderful defense lawyer. And so I'm going to college. It's a distraction, but it's something I do for my mom. So I get to the end of my sophomore year and I announce to the dean of students and a variety of other people, it's been real but I won't be seeing you anymore. And they're like, well, why not? I'm like, because I have to go learn to type. I'm going to be a secretary. I don't know how to type and I don't know how to take shorthand. So I'm not planning to come back. I'm going to go to, you know, there was this business school in Philadelphia and I don't mean the kind that gives you an MBA. And the dean of students looked at me and he said, do you ever think about becoming a lawyer? I said, well, no. He said, well, you know, you could be. I'm thinking, well, that could work. I could stay in college, which I was liking, Um, you know, like, and so I thought, all right, well, okay, let me think about that. And so that was life altering for me because without him saying that to me, I would have dropped out of college. And, and I, you know, it took me a while. I did thankfully at a time in my life, have the opportunity to thank him for that But I almost think that that has happened to me in so many other instances um, where people have said to me, how about? And it has allowed me to buck the trend, but not because I was sort of edging to do that. And so I have been so unbelievably blessed. And so to how real quick that I got to Yale Law School. So, you know, it's my senior year of college. I'm applying to law school. It's 1972. Um, If those of you who've read about the 60s, it's a little bit after the 60s. I'm I'm going to go to NYU. I'm going to become a hippie. I'm going to live in Greenwich Village. I have this all mark, marked out. My mother goes, uh, no, that's not happening. So I said, okay. So then I start looking elsewhere. Um, I apply to Penn. I don't get in. Um, you know, so I literally just fell into being a Yale law student, um, something that has opened enormous doors for me over life, but not because it was part of any plan. And I will tell you, it was really hard being one of only 10 African-Americans and one of only um, 40 women in this regard. And I'll end this very quickly. Um, That class was small, as you just said. It had a lot of second and even third generation lawyers They knew what they were studying. I'd never met a lawyer and let alone a woman lawyer or a woman lawyer of color. I didn't even really know what it meant except to be Perry Mason. And it made so much of that harder than it was for my classmates. And I remembered that then and I remember it now. But I think it made me a stronger person to have been able to manage and prevail. That is a perfect segue into my question, which is, when did you first realize you had a voice and when did you start using that voice? Two different time periods, probably. 
true. I learned that I had a voice after I became a law professor. I should say um, I was a practicing lawyer for nine years before I had the good fortune of getting a job as a law professor. And early in my career as a law professor, one of my colleagues started inviting me to join him and others in being advocacy teachers. And part of my travels around the world, frankly, are because I, I should say was, um, a, a, a advocacy professor. I got invited to many law firms, many countries, um, the Japanese Bar Association, just lots of wonderful things. But part of what I learned from all of that was that I could walk into a room and I could actually make a difference. I'll share this story. I was blessed to spend many summer weeks each year in Boulder, Colorado, where the National Institute for Trial Advocacy had its summer program. It was a wonderful time in my life. I couldn't imagine being anywhere else in the summer except Boulder. Um, but early in my career there, um, as we often did on Friday nights, we went out to a Mexican restaurant. Um, we all gathered there. It was big fun. And one of the students in my group walked up to me and said, I owe you an apology. And I said, what for? And he said, when you were introduced on Sunday evening of the prior week as my team leader, leader, I was incredibly disappointed because I thought, what could that black woman possibly teach me? And he said, I learned more from you this week than I could have ever imagined. And I thanked him, but I also held that fact to realize that when I was introduced, I had no presumption of ability, credibility, anything. I admired him for being able to come up to me and tell me that because I would not otherwise have known. He didn't realize at the time that he gave me an incredible gift, that I realized that I could walk into a room of doubters and win them over. So that's when I knew I had a voice. I then had to figure out when to use it. And I have to say that it's only been in the last few years that I feel like I've actually <clears throat> cleared my throat and started, I'm not shouting, but you get to a point in your life when you feel like I have something to say and I feel comfortable enough and confident enough to say that. So it's, it was a long time in coming. Thank you for sharing that. Serena, when did you first realize you had a voice? When did you start using your voice? Like Joanne, I think it took me a long time to actually start using my voice. In fact, until very recently have I started practicing, I think, actually using it. The first time I think I realized I had a voice was when I was a district attorney. Um, there were a lot of things, as I mentioned earlier, that had occurred that bothered me that I didn't have names for, things that made me uncomfortable that I kind of uh, shied away from. And it wasn't until much later that I could look back and think, uh, that's why that bothered me. Or, or So things having to do with feeling excluded, either as a woman or as somebody who is Mexican-American or a Spanish speaker. And I had never really put them all together. This whole idea of intersectionality had never was not something that I was cognizant of as a 25-year-old joining the district attorney's office. It probably wasn't even a word at that time. You're probably right, Joanne. I agree with you. Um, I've definitely learned a lot, I think, in the last even couple years but I remember there was this moment where when you join a big office where most of the people that you look, to, look up to are men, there's a culture that you don't want to buck. You don't come in um, 
saying, hey, why do we do that? Hey, I, I don't really agree with that. Or that makes me uncomfortable. I, you just want to learn and move up. And, and so, so I did that. And I was silent a lot of the time. So there was a time when I had a jury trial and it was um, a terrible trial. I was up against these two very experienced criminal defense attorneys. There were two defendants. They were charged with murder. We had to prove up another murder for motive. And there was a young man who had shot at five people with an AK-47. Um, so very high stakes. I was the only woman. I was the only woman. Uh, there were no female investigators. There were no female de defense attorneys. The judge was a man. Most of the jury, the jury was fairly mixed maybe, but I was the only one. And I'm the DA, so I'm the one putting on this whole case. So these lawyers kept trying to uh, make me feel powerless by asking the judge to make me do things for them. They would show up in court and say, oh, Your Honor, I don't have my penal code. Um, can you ask the DA? Can can the DA please let me borrow her penal code? Can the DA show me her notes? Can the DA, as if I was there to kind of serve as all of their secretaries, and I couldn't figure out why it kept bothering me, but I could tell that it was making me feel, they were trying to make it seem like I had less power than they did in the courtroom. So it's a very subtle thing. And at one point, this lawyer kept bringing up the same motion and calling it a different name, and we'd have to go to sidebar. So he was using it to disrupt. Every time I was making points with a witness, he would say, sidebar, and, and just shout things out. He didn't follow the rules, and I would have to go up there and talk and come back. And so half the time we'd go up there, and the three of them would have a conversation about whatever the law was, and then they would be satisfied with whatever their answers, and then we would all go back. And then they would drag me up again. So finally, after the third time that this happened, where they didn't even ask me my position, they just would discuss it amongst themselves, and I would try to be heard, and they were ignoring me. I, I, I realized that there was a lot of power in silence and in asking a question. So we go up to sidebar, the same conversation happened about the same motion. They all agree again, and it was an outrageous point. I'm not even going to tell you what that was. And so they all go to the two lawyers, go back to sit at the counsel table. The judge goes back and sits at his bench. And so I just stood there in the well. The well is the area between counsel table and the judge. You're never supposed to go in there unless the judge invites you. So it's a very conspicuous place to be standing by yourself in the middle of a courtroom. So I just stood there. I straightened my back and I just put my hands down. I stood there and they all sit down and they're all ready to go. And not until that moment did they realize that I'm not sitting at counsel table ready to ask my next question. So I just stood there staring at the wall. And the judge looks around and he says, Miss, Miss Murillo? And I said, yes, Your Honor. And he said, is there a reason that you're not sitting at counsel table? And I said, yes, Your Honor. The people would like an opportunity to be heard at sidebar. And he goes, oh, oh, didn't I hear from you? And I said, no, Your Honor. And he, and he, oh, oh, well, oh, I'm sorry. And so he comes back and then the lawyers had to go up there again. And I, and that's when just by asking, I said, Your Honor, um, I just have a question. How is this motion different from the last three? And that was kind of when the lights came on. And then he realized, and I said, I don't appreciate getting brought up here every five minutes for the same exact motion. I would ask the court. And so I proceeded to ask the court to kind of exercise a little bit of control, see what's happening. And you know what? That's the last time that it happened. Um, and then the case was able to proceed. And I think that was the first time I thought, okay, they're going to talk over me. They're going to try to make me seem like their secretary. But by not going along with the program, by sometimes remaining silent, by doing the awkward thing, and by asking questions, 
sometimes I can get a little bit of that control back, at least in that venue. And I think that was the first time I, I felt a little bit powerful in my role in having kind of come up with a different solution. So that was probably the first time I realized I had a voice. And you did it respectfully. I tried. Joanne, in 2009, you served on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And it was a fourth day of hearings on the appointment of Judge Sonia Sotomayor to the U.S. Supreme Court. Tell us about that. Boy, you've really done your homework. Um, well, it was interestingly, I was there in connection with my service um, to NAL, the National Association of Women Lawyers. I was there on their behalf. And it was really an honor to be able to speak on now Justice Sonia Sotomayor's behalf. It was scary, of course. I'd never been in a setting like that, never testified before, before the Senate. Didn't really know what that was going to feel like. And I have to tell you this funny story. So the um, the hearings are being covered by CNN. And so you're wherever we're waiting. And um, it's finally my turn. And they usher me in. Was and it CNN I'm, or C-SPAN? Oh, one of the two. Probably could have been C-SPAN. I don't remember. Thank okay. you. Could have been C-SPAN. I watched um, it on C-SPAN. Oh, did you? Well, then maybe you will see the part that I'm about to talk to. So I get seated and the hearing is not in process. So it doesn't occur to me that I'm on camera. And so friends of mine are telling me later that they're watching me adjust my clothes, and you know, <laughs> because I think this is going to get started soon, um, except it's actually being broadcast live. Uh, so that was the funny part of that day, which probably is not captured, Lisa, on the part you got to see. Thankfully, it, it got ditched by those people doing edits. But um that was a funny part, but I didn't know. So it didn't make me at all uncomfortable to think that I had just sort of embarrassed myself on tel national television. But it was a real honor to be able to speak to, um, the, you know, the, the, the first Hispanic woman justice to talk about her accomplishments and to recognize all that her appointment meant. As we've been saying in this podcast, if you grew up in a world where you didn't see anybody who looked like you, my husband and I often remark, your dreams are constrained. You just don't even imagine what you might be or what you might do, because how would you know? And so that was one of the many opportunities I've had to applaud um, the progress of our country. But as we know, there's more to do. What an inspiring conversation. Now, before I get to the Risa wrap-up, here's a word from the host and creator of the podcast, Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry, and I'm the host of Revision Path, an award-winning weekly interview podcast that showcases the world's best black designers, developers, and digital creatives. If you're looking to get inspired, then tune in each week for in-depth conversations that explore the creative journey, including the processes, thoughts, and motivations behind these awesome creators shaping the future of art, design, and technology. So the Visible Voices podcast seeks to amplify voices that are known and those that may be unknown. And in both of these cases, Serena and Joanne have stories. They have voices that are worth hearing. Everybody's voice is worth hearing. I was struck in particular by both of them and the stories they share, just how impactful, just how they have been the recipients of bias, harassment, bullying, microaggressions, fill in the term. And those experiences shaped them 
drove them to be more advocates, more champions of safe and dignified work environments. It's not surprising to me that a lot of the stories that I hear uh, when I'm speaking with friends in the legal profession are very similar to the stories that I know, hear, see, witness in the medical profession. I think all of us can make a difference and can work towards having better, safer environments. That's it for this week. See you next time, audience. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.